0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Arsenal Women Ask Cast on arseblog.com June edition, not a mailbag this time. We did promise you earlier this month with the mailbag edition that we'd be getting some very special guests uh, later on in June, and I believe we have delivered on that promise. And one of the things I want to talk about in the first half of this episode, so the second half of the episode, we've got um, my chat with Susie Rack coming up about her book, a woman's game, the, the rise, fall, and rise again of women's football. So that's going to be in part two. But in part one, uh, an, a kind of an aspect of football coverage I've always been fascinated about, and we all know about, but don't really talk about enough, I think. Uh, uh, commentators and co-commentators and they're they're so ubiquitous in our kind of experience of football and some of us absolutely live our experience of our football teams and just football in general through pundits, through commentators, through co-commentators just think of some of those legendary lines that are associated with the biggest moments in football history. And and you kind of realise what an important but quite understated role that commentators and co-commentators have, particularly in a kind of shifting media landscape. So I thought I would get two of the best in the business to talk about that with me. Um, Two uh, probably names you'll be familiar with, but if not voices, you will certainly be familiar with. Um, First of all, from BBC, Match of the Day, probably a lot of the WSL coverage um, that you will hear. Uh, we've got Robin Cohen. Robin, thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you for a very kind introduction. I hope I live up to it.
0: <laughs> and uh, and and so obviously we'll get the kind of the commentator's view from Robin. And then on the kind of COCOM side, because obviously that's a really interesting role as well, and, and actually quite a different role to that of commentator. Delighted to be joined by Lucy Ward. Lucy, thanks for joining us.
2: Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, yeah, great great stuff I mean the like I said um, at the top really this is this is such a kind of a fascinating role and I think it's a lot of us who watch a lot of football um, probably consider it something of a dream role um, to be a commentator but I've heard it compared uh, Robin a little bit to like being a teacher in that the lesson is actually only a small part of what the teacher does and 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 for the commentator um, you know that's that's probably true as well and Um, I guess to start with Robin can I get you just to talk a little bit I mean I guess about your career when did you realise that you wanted to be a football commentator and what was your role uh, sorry your your route into it I don't think I ever realised it to be honest Tim because
1: it didn't really honestly it didn't even enter my thinking about this could be a job Um, I think like a lot of people I got into it completely by accident Um, I actually did a law degree um, and then I saw – I was just obsessed with football. That was the main thing. That was my passion, um, all the stories, reading all the papers, etc. And then I saw on Twitter that the BBC was doing a sort of summer internship called BBC Kickoff, where they were selecting one person to go into their local radio station to do a sort of internship over the summer, just shadowing the sports team, but not like the – the experience I had with work experience generally, which was basically maybe some filing and basically being bored off your ass for most of it, so you actually we've did all it been there, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I think we could all, yeah, I'm sure all the listeners are getting flashbacks now. Uh, but yeah, you actually got some practical experience and some skills and. Yeah, I was lucky enough to be selected for BBC Radio Oxford. Um, being an Oxford United fan, it was it was really weird seeing um, the sports editor Jerome Sale, because I wasn't sure what he looked like, and uh, you, you know, a bit like uh, like my mum watching The Archers, she kind of has a picture in her mind of what what they what they are and and what they look like, and. Um, and yeah, it, it, he basically just took me under his wing. He saw something in me, and from sort of reading bulletins and helping out on the breakfast show, he said, "Well, why don't you give commentary a go?" And honestly, the, it just snowballed from there. And with his help, been very fortunate to have a lot of support within the BBC from him and all the way up to the top. Um, it's gradually grown and. Yeah, here I am today. So it's it, as I say, I've been very fortunate. As I felt like I came into it when the WSL came in, and also when the BBC committed to covering it. So I was quite lucky that my path kind of crossed with that one. Um, and yeah, decide, I don't know when I decided it could be a job, to be honest, because I'm still. I guess I, I guess I am a commentator now, but as I say, it's kind of it doesn't. It's not one of those jobs you kind of, especially as a woman, I don't feel like you. you you kind of aspire to be that at school or anything. You kind of think, "Well, oh, what am I going to be?" Um, so, yeah. I, but it is a dream job. Obviously, it has it comes with its stresses and strains, um, especially at the, you know with the social media aspect. But you can't really complain um, at all because you're basically watching football for money when you pull it down to the bare bones.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, you said that you never really considered it as a as a I guess a, a career or a job, but mm. you know. We, anyone who watches football you experience things through the medium of commentators i know from my youth like brian moore for me i just associate that voice particularly with moments from my own club's history were there who who were your influences or when you went into this job was there anyone you thought uh, i i you know not not necessarily just to be like them but did you have anyone in mind who, who you kind of had as a bit of an influence
1: well even though i didn't consider it a job i was a huge fan um of Jonathan Pierce I think my generation not just of football I thought I think I first heard him doing football on Channel 5 doing England games And I remember me and my dad used to do impressions of him because he used to go so excited and used to fall off his chair. And uh, my favorite um, player was Alan Shearer. And the way he used to shout his name, it just it it kind of that resonated with me. And I think also, even though I'm not sure he's very pleased with this, my generation obviously remember him as Robot Wars commentator. That was kind of iconic. (laughs) So he was the one who I kind of looked to and the one. I just think, uh, I, I know, it's actually, it's not just him. All commentators, it's so subjective. Everyone has their favourites and we all have little bits and pieces that we draw from or that we don't particularly like. And for me, it's he stood out. I think there's quite a lot because of the saturation of football now. You get quite a lot of commentators who sound fairly similar, um, not just because of their accent or whatever, just because, you know, you could you can kind of go through the motions with a commentary um but I always felt like he his turn of phrase and his voice um really stood out and that was the he was the person who i re- i really looked to and continued to do so and then when I met him and uh, you know became sort of colleagues with him it was ridiculous really um I wouldn't say a dream come true because it wasn't really a dream it wasn't kind of in as i say in my sphere so it's it, it's still I still find it very weird very weird indeed. <laughs>
0: Yeah and of course someone who's very synonymous with women's football coverage as well and I think my Mm. um, earlier experiences of Jonathan Pearce kind of predate Channel 5 actually when he was on Capital Gold that was how before I was old enough to go to Arsenal away games that was how I listened to them on the radio and it was Capital Gold and it was Jonathan Pearce and Um, I associate him with a lot of um, disappointing away defeats for Arsenal in the (laughs) early 90s, to be honest. Um, Lucy, just to to talk a little bit about your route in, because obviously you're um, a former player and had a distinguished playing career with Leeds and Donny Bells. Um, And I know, you know, you worked with the Leeds Academy after that, and I know you did some commentary work. Um, But how did this kind of, I guess, more full-time... Um, you know, once you kind of came out of the Leeds Academy, was it always in your mind to try and make more of a crack of the media work? Or was it something a bit like Robin that was a little bit happenstance?
2: 2005, um, my friend who I played football with, Sue Smith, was working for uh, Eurosport and BBC for the Women's Euros, 2005. And I did a Eurosport game, and I think over the course of the Euros, I went for dinner with her and Kaz Walker, the legend, and a Match of the Day editor called Lance Hardy, who sadly died last year, but uh, he was pivotal to to what I did within broadcasting. And I I didn't think of anything. We had a good laugh, but I must have dazzled him with my wit and charm during this uh, That's sarcasm by the way during this 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 meal because purely about 18 months later he rang me up lance he was the bbc match of the day editor and said you would be brilliant at co-coms and i was like right well i have no idea how you work that out lance but he says because i want you to 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 be the co for the BBC's coverage of the Women's World Cup in China, out in China in 2007. Now, obviously, this is completely out of the blue. I've never done co commentary. The first time I did co commentary was sat next to Guy Mowbray in Shanghai covering Germany versus Argentina. I think it was something like 11 1, something ridiculous like that. Um, and when Guy, st- I mean, everybody treated me like I'd, I'd, uh, you know, was was a uh, you know a, a experienced co-com. You know, the, the 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 my colleagues that I was out in China with. But then when we sat down and we he started to talk, and obviously Guy's voice is synonymous with B, uh, BBC Match of the Day, etc. Was at that point as well. He started to talk, and I had a, like a mini nervous breakdown because I was like, oh my god, I'm just about to co-com on the BBC in China, uh, and I've never done it before, and I just i done quite. A lot. I learned quite well by listening and watching other people, and I think I'd listened a lot to Guy with Mark Lawrence and, I think that they're not not everybody liked the way that Matt Lawrence and co con but his timing and his humour with Guy and the the nature of their relationship, I I thought was brilliant. And so what I wanted to be was myself, obviously, but the female. Mark Lawrenson in terms of the relationship that I had with Guy and, and look, we met uh, in the queue for the for the uh, um, plane from Leeds Bradford to Amsterdam, the first time we met and we had to obviously develop a relationship and that's a running theme and Robin will tell you the same, that quite a lot of the time you work on a game with somebody that you've never met before um, and it's... I think we met didn't we yeah. on
1: the way to... Um... Estonia, yeah, I think it's ridiculous. Yeah. It was madness, absolutely madness.
2: ridiculous. So you, you, because the 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 art of commentary and co-commentary is about the relationship between the two people that are doing it. So you have to have. You, really specific um rhythm and you need to know what they're like and so actually to have to do that while you're actually commentating um and i am in awe of every commentator robin in, in, included because i couldn't do w- what they do you know I, I i say stuff when um i think there's something to say uh, and if i don't think there's something to say i don't say anything but people still need to talk the commentator still needs to to fill in so that was my first taste 2007 world cup and then i think because there wasn't that many women that did commentary every time that, 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 that there was a women's football game on tv i used to find the name of the producer contact them and say oh i've done bbc and the um you know do, can i work for you and so i ended up working for sky itv channel 4 bbc again um and obviously, the people that now are working as COCOM women that were, were still playing at that time, and I was playing at the time and um, and did it, at the, at, 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 and obviously worked as a COCOM for years and years. In fact, The first time I did a men's game, a Premier League men's game, was December 2020, and my first, obviously, COCOM was in 2007. So I did a pretty long apprenticeship um, in terms of getting myself to to that stage, if that's the the pinnacle. But obviously, a men's Premier League game is... um, there's a lot more attention on it, shall we say, than than there ever has been a, a women's game. But I just I just find it naturally easy, and I say naturally easy in in terms of talking because that's all I ever used to do um, is talk. And <laughs> at school and during my time in a football club, I love being part of a team and and sort of ch- trying to sort of join in a bit, a little bit of fun. And and I think that's sort of natural. Um, I, I think I'm quite aware of other people. I'm. I always try and leave it to the co- the commentator to lead, and the way ever the commentator is, I just try and fit in around around them. And and I think most importantly, as a, as a team member, when you're going abroad, so me and Robin have been to France 2019, which was a fantastic trip, but at the time was really really tough. I try and just be the one um, who is quite laid back and and tries to make people laugh, and I think that uh, that I work well with people like Robin doing that sort of thing. And it, and it, you know, and obviously I've I've I got chosen to do um, Amazon Prime first as a uh, Premier League, and I worked for BT for ten years before they saw me do Men's Premier League with Prime, and then thought that it would be a good idea for me to to do. Um, the Premier League with BT, and and I've and I've sort of since then, I have a contract now with BT, and and it's now my full time job.
0: Yeah, that's incredible, and and a lot of the things you've spoken um, about there, Lucy, kind of. I, I don't know if it rings a bell in your head, but it makes me think of your experience as a player, you know, um, getting that chemistry maybe with people that you don't know and that you've only just met, or maybe you meet on a bus or a plane, like a new signing or something and thinking, right, I have to I have to find out what makes this person tick quite quickly and talking about the travelling aspect and things like that and and obviously, you know, now it's a it's a much more viable career route, I think, for um, you know, a, a WSL footballer, for example, who might just be retiring um, wh- whereas for you, um, obviously, it, like you say, you're one of the first to come through. Do do you, do you think that from your playing career, you bring things from your playing career into the the co coms aspect?
2: Yeah, I think the the playing career. I think you're exactly right, Tim, about the being part of a, a team and. Sitting yourself in a certain role within that team to ensure that the team is is as, as effective as possible, and I and I think I, I I do that quite well. I think my experiences of playing with with top players who were who've played for England sort of like the last ten years, the younger players that I've played with. But I think a lot of it is when I worked at Leeds and I was part of um, the academy staff and working in a training ground, a professional men's training ground, that has given me the most experience to to have any sort of authority on on talking about football because I know exactly how probably more so men's players work than than women's players. Obviously, I I was a women's player, so that sort of comes natural to me. But knowing how professional football works, I think that has, has really, really helped Uh, me have that sort of background knowledge and that authenticity as well you know working sort of 17-18 years within a professional football club I think I, I have always struggled with not being a top player in terms of not having caps for England so when when um, broadcasters used women. They had to say, say "Well, we we're using her because she's got 150 caps for England, so you can't complain about that." But with me, they couldn't say that, and I think that's why I, I didn't come into the sort of um, mainstream and into into men's uh, Premier League coverage until they'd seen me and thought, "Well, actually, she's quite good." Well, I'd sort of had 15 years' experience by 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 that that stage. Um, but I have always struggled with the well. How do you know anything about it, particularly men's football, when you know you didn't even play for England? But I don't actually think that that has anything to do to do with it. But I think that's that's one of the things that I think has, has held me back. So I just re- worked really, really hard on making sure that that, that when I did CoCom, I, I was as as good as I could be
0: yeah and and you've kind of touched on there a lot of the things that make a good co-com both behind the scenes and in terms of like bringing the color to the game and obviously not having to talk unless unless there's something to say but Robin the job's very different for you because you have to talk pretty much all of the time and that um, that strikes me as quite an intimidating thing to have to do um for for you i don 't know how much you 've ever thought about this given the way that you got into the gig as it were what What does the job description of a football commentator look like look like to you? what do you think um like what what are you there to do in your eyes when you go and commentate on a game?
1: Well, I'll, I'll quote um, the doyen of football commentators, who, uh, who trains everyone at the BBC, Rob Nothman, who's who's very well known. He also does reporting and producing for the BBC. But I think especially TV and radio is very very different, which is something I learnt very quickly because you start off with radio where you basically have to talk the whole time, which actually is I found okay because. You can say things, add colour, you know, um, description, because people can't see what you're seeing. When I moved to TV, I found it very difficult to realise that you don't have to talk the whole time. And you end up, when when you've come from a radio background, which I believe most commentators have, a vast majority of them, especially from the BBC, you realise actually that you you can let it breathe and you you try and uh, take all those things out that people can see. So like saying, oh, a left-footed shot. You don't need to say that anymore, things like that. But Rob Northman always used to say you need to add value. That's what you do. You don't want to be um, – because in all honesty, unless it's a kind of really, really uh, intense, important final, a lot of people will sort of dip in and out. So you're kind of the soundtrack to that. So you don't want to be too intrusive. You need to know what to say at the right time. So And honestly, it's taken me the best part of a decade to feel confident that I'm doing that. And of course, not always. You don't always do that Um, because there's the beauty of football. You don't know what's going to happen. So you kind of have to, you can't script it. You obviously do a lot of preparation, and that's most of the job. I know uh, beforehand, Tim, you were comparing it to being a teacher. I actually flip it; and it's it's just like doing exams. I don't know if Lucy feels the same, but most of the job is the preparation beforehand, and you get all your notes together, and the the ninety minutes is the exam. So you should know everything um and also you do get frustrated when you go into an exam and a question you are uh, you you've revised for doesn't come up and so that's another discipline that you need to learn which I need to learn is not to shoehorn in all your preparation just for the sake of it because you think I've worked so hard on this and this is brilliant so I need to get this in somewhere but it 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 sounds really weird when you when you do it
2: that's a perfect yeah. analogy. Sorry to interrupt. That's a perfect analogy. Yeah, yeah. Right, it, it, that is perfect. That you are that you do get a little bit frustrated that if something doesn't come doesn't yeah. happen like that. Like, that's no. brilliant bit. Yeah, yeah. that's that,
0: that's really. In fact, honestly, I was going to use that analogy myself mm. because um, as part of my preparation for this, I listened to uh, Conor Mcnamara on the Football Cliches podcast and uh, yeah. I think everyone recognises Connor as, as one of the best in the game. Um, and he said exactly that, that one of the things he learned as a young commentator was exactly that exam thing. And that kind of, Oh my God, 80 minutes have gone. I've got all these notes and I've only used five yeah. of it. It's it really,
1: it's annoying. And it's, yeah. but yeah, but the, it, it sounds really weird. And I think everyone knows a commentator or you, 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 you kind of listen to a piece of commentary and, um, and so and they say something you think, well, that's a bit of a weird thing to say at that point. And you realize, oh, OK, they're, they're just so they are absolutely on the edge of this <laughs> wanting to do this, wanting to <laughs> drop this nugget of information. So it's, it's all about the discipline in every aspect.
0: Yeah, he he also mentioned Rob as well um, in terms of getting feedback. And he talked about, um, you know, as a commentator, he talked about like the absolute sweet spot that you almost never get. Because I believe commentators, particularly on TV, or not just on TV at all, after the goal goes in, like leave it a couple of seconds and Mm. kind of let the scene erupt around you. And obviously you'll hear the fans and stuff like that anyway. And he and Connor was talking about how Robert told him the absolute sweet spot is to come in at the perfect moment after that silence. So and and you listen to something like the famous like Martin Tyler Aguero. Actually, what he does after that is he stops and he shuts up for about nine seconds and then he says i swear you'll never see anything like this and and that mm. as a piece of commentary like from a technical perspective they were talking you know he was talking about how that's almost the perfect piece of commentary
1: that that is perfection that's
0: yeah. Yeah. perfection what he did there and and like the layperson will not realize that but you guys as commentators will realize yeah that's what he's done there and he's like it's almost like hitting a a volley just as the ball drops they would notice <laughs> um, as well
2: tim that they would notice if he didn't do it right that it, so yeah, you exactly. don't notice when it's perfection, but when, when it isn't, you go, why why, why, have they, why have they just said that? Why is he, his timing? What, something doesn't feel right or doesn't fit, you know? So when they do, don't do get it right, it's pretty obvious.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and actually, uh, some of the thing that's quite odd about watching some of the WSL games on the FA player, and this isn't a criticism of the FA player, which I think has been a, a game-changing advance in the WSL, but obviously it's one camera, it's one shot, not many replays and mm. the most disconcerting thing is when a goal is scored and then the camera just pans back to the halfway line and you really notice that you're not getting like the replay and the reaction you're just getting the kind of the high fives and then the camera literally pans back and i think that's a perfect way of explaining it you don't realize until it's like until it's not there. Um, you kind of both referenced um, really what what goes into preparing for a lot of these games. And and I guess, um, and I'll, I'll ask you that question in a minute, Robin, because um, I know, like you say, for, for commentators, there's so much. But Lucy, for your role, which is, you know, about like, I guess, the analysis part, the color um, part when you go to do like research before you commentate on a game what type of things do you tend to look for or do you like to know
2: okay so the first thing that I do. I get the both teams, and I get the, the the probably the last five or six results that they've got, and the teams that were played. So I'd write out the the, the teams um, who played in what position, what formation, and I do do that and see what's changed over sort of the the previous four or five games. Look at any patterns of team selection. Uh, look at who's injured or or uh, is missing out for, and see what the manager's been doing and then work out formation patterns. Do they play the same formation regardless or do they adapt the formation depending on who they're playing against um, and make sure I know who plays for which formation? So that when I'm presenting with a team on a match day, I know exactly how they're going to set up and, and who uh, and who will play where. Then I will look at specific tactics. I'll research the tactics of this particular manager, the team, certain players, um i'll make loads and loads of notes i do it i do it on um on my laptop i used to write it all out and obviously when i start doing then two or three games a week i stopped writing it all out um and i'll make notes about that and then eventually i will end up with um i have three pages one page which I have, I split the 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 moments of a game into in possession, out of possession, lose possession, and regain possession. So for each team, I know what they do generally uh, in those four moments of the game. So I'll I'll if I don't really know the team, but I know what formation they'll play, I'll I'll generalize unless uh, until I do watch them. And I'll also on the other side of that, I have my that page is split into quadrants. I'm also looking at anything that I've found about that team uh, the way that they've played anything that will influence how they're going to play in this particular game and obviously um, before that all comes to fruition I will watch um, games now how many I watch or how many different types of games I won't watch all the games or I just get a a sense of what the teams do in different moments of the game but I'll depend on how well I've seen the teams before if it's a Champions League game and I I've no idea about any of the players or I've never seen them play. I will watch watch a, a, on YouTube um, the way that they play and see if I can pick pick things out. I'm lucky that my partner's Neil Redfern who is a um, quite established and an excellent coach and the what he sees um on a football pitch I I cannot see. So the information that he gives me and makes me look at has has brought me on leaps and bounds obviously in the last few years. So that helps. Um closer to the game, I'll do look at team news, I'll look at the managers press conference and make notes, I'll look at match previews online, see what people are saying. I listen to um podcasts about uh, the specific good podcast for each club. So what what is the fans' perspective, what are they thinking? Um and I just think that helps because what what you want to do is, particularly in the in the premier the Premier League games where I'm under a lot more scrutiny than I am um, in my, a more comfortable setting of, of women's football is that the fan has to sit and listen and think, well, fair play because she knows my club. She knows what's happening at my club at the moment because the worst thing you could do is not not know what's going on. So you sort of know the feeling that might be towards a manager about certain players, et cetera. Um, so then I'll produce my my, my sheets um, with with all this information on. I've sort of tweaked the way that I do it simply as I've got more games per week as I've gone on um, in the last sort of 18 months or so. But it's pretty similar what I do each time. And again, like Robin says, you don't hardly use any of it, but it gives you that the guide. And if at halftime I'll make notes about what each team needs to do to... Um, to, to do better or to stop the other team doing whatever they're doing, um, and I do a lot of sort of tactical work and and uh, you know quite a lot of reading. I speak to people uh, like Tim about their own particular club. You know, I'll ask certain people that I know on on Twitter and sort of say, right, tell me what tell me what you're thinking. What what's what's been happening in the last few games that I might not have seen. Uh, so it's quite a lot. <laughs> it's quite a lot, and um, it just for me, it's about. Being prepared uh, I feel a lot better going into a game when I've done all that stuff that that whatever happens that I can cope with
0: yeah almost almost like a coach in fact um there are some professional gamblers who do stuff like this you know like um I, I think there was a professional gambler who found that like Scottish lower league odds were, were really, really kind of undervalued. And he just used to spend Friday nights in like the Dunfermline athletic um, chat rooms <laughs> um, to try and get a sense of what do Dunfermline do away from home and, and things like that. So it's, yeah. it's all really, really fascinating. And, and Robin, for you, um, what what kind of research, do, Like obviously there's a strong data component. I guess, what does your yeah. desk look like um, when you when you know the light goes green and you're on air, what kind of notes do you have in front of you?
1: Yeah, I mean it's similar to Lucy. I when I first started, I was writing everything out, but then you realise when you get given a few games, it's also really much easier to refer back to previous games by having them on the computer. Um, yeah, I'm not so much on the the tactical thing, although it's it, it's um, it's good to have and also when you do a match of the day you kind of have to be the commentator and the co-commentator so when the goal goes in you describe the goal and then also have to pass comment which is something i'm still not in 100% comfortable with because it's kind of you know passing judgment on some of the premier league players is, it feels a little bit mm-hmm. um, yeah not in my wheelhouse so i usually leave that to to the likes of lucy but uh, I mean, for big games and like for the big tournament coming up, uh, the Euros, you'll be sent a stat pack, which is absolutely humongous. And you just got to, again, the, the word discipline, you pick out the things that you think are useful. Um, so I've got a fair amount of stats. I don't go overboard because I, I, I just don't think it, it lands a lot, a lot of them. Obviously, you've got milestones If they, if a milestone cap or a milestone goal might be coming up. You want to be aware of that. But a lot of it is just, yeah, knowing how they play, um, form guides, that sort of thing. Um, so it's, it's a little bit more, as you say, sort of database in terms of that. So I've got a sort of list of the all the players and all the relevant information that I think I'll need um, and how the team are doing, where they are in league, um or, or if it's a tournament past tournament histories things like that it's more more of that sort of side of things uh because you know ultimately it's i'm not the expert it's it's the person sitting next to me who is going to be talking about um why something happened or why it was good or why it was bad so it's yeah it's it's it, that's not that's not really um uh, as i say it's not really my remit so yeah it's more more sort of stats but um, i personally don't go too heavy on them uh, just just the sort of the ones that, that that i think are interesting um so when it's got when there's too many sort of variants uh you know so and so scored that many goals the say while being under twenty-one and being from Brazil, it's just like it's too much. It's too much. It's not. It's not, that, it's not that special. Yeah. <laughs>
0: it's
1: not that special anymore. So yeah, it's 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 all that stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I know the one you're referring to. I think there was a stat came out about Vinicius Junior scoring. Yeah, like, that's the one. <laughs> he was like had the most goal involve, involvements for a player under twenty-one from outside Europe You know, just like that. Yeah, too just,
1: late. no, switched off.
0: Switched yeah, off.
1: exactly.
0: <laughs> and so, Lucy, I, I've got one more question for each of you, and. and Lucy, for you, with the level of kind of tactical detail and things like that that you're looking for, and obviously you both work across kind of the men and the women's game, how much harder is that to do in women's football than men's? Like, how how far around the dregs of the internet do you have uh, to go to get some of that information?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's better now. I mean, I think, let, let me think where we are now. I mean, that there'll be the most... You know, most available information tactically now for this Euros, and and I'm, th- I'm I'm thinking, thank God for that because you know I have literally got turned up to tournaments. And I think I worked out this was my tenth tournament with Olympics, Euros, and World Cups, etc. That that the first ones I'd turn up and. Only really know the names of the opposition player, it'd be England playing against whoever, and then you've just got to quickly work out. And to be honest, at those stages of the BBC when the BBC covered England, you were mostly concerned with England. You know, you weren't particularly concerned with who they were playing, so you could get away with as long as you knew everything about England. But but now it's you know when I'm doing the Cham- women's Champions League. There's information there's people you know on on Twitter I'll use Twitter a lot who who do really good analysis work on um, teams and I don't, teams and players. I might not always agree with what everything that they put, but I will I'll steal I'm a professional stealer of um, information and so it's much better but there is a difference in terms of when you're doing games, I always find tactically it's easier to spot patterns in the men's game. Um, than it is the women's game in terms of of, of tactics uh generally in, in, in the WSL and that's no real criticism of women's football, it's just the, the, the progress of, uh, of women's football at this particular moment. So it's sometimes it's it's a lot more difficult to actually work out what's happening in women's football. Um but I quite enjoy that. Um and obviously the players nowadays in women's football are so much better and it's such a joy to watch the the, the game at the level as it is, it is now.
0: Yeah, and also I, I think some of the gaps between the teams still in the WSL, for example, with like, how would you, um, you know, tactically analyse what Leicester do, for example, when they lose 6 or yeah. 7 nil to Man City? It's just, it, it's not even interesting. No, no, it isn't. <laughs> um, really, particularly. Um, and, and Robin, my, my kind of last question um, for this, uh, for you, I guess, is um, what kind of, I, I guess, like, what does, like, training um look like for a commentator because I'm thinking for example in like my own career I I always just wanted to be a writer that wasn't like the whole walk up like podcast didn't exist when I was kind of setting (laughs) all of this out and I never imagined that one day I'd make more money talking than writing about football but (laughs) one of the things I learned really quickly when I started doing lots of podcasts is you know I'd listened back and I think, Christ, my voice is so monotone and boring. And <laughs> we've all been there, yeah. And, and you're like, I I can't talk normally on, on this. I have to, you know, I have to like inject some enthusiasm that doesn't come naturally to me. And um and I wonder, like, what what's that like for you? Like when do you listen back to your games? Was there a point where you thought Oh no, I wanna I wanna like is you know, do you do like I don't know, elocution or intonation or anything like that? And I'm thinking, particularly with with an Arsenal perspective, I think a lot of us, Robin, would associate you with um with Miedama <laughs> like well, you know, many commentators have to do many times during a season. And incidentally, what a wonderful name she has for that with all of the oh, vowels and everything in it.
1: <laughs> poetry. Absolute <Do> you, poetry. <laughs>
0: like Do you listen back and do you work on things like intonation and, and things like that?
1: Do you know what? I, f- uh, this horrible football cliche. For my sins, I don't listen back as much as I should. I always watch back. Um, You know WSL highlights or a match the day. Um, I probably wouldn't. I wouldn't watch like a whole game back. Um, I have sessions with Rob Nothman occasionally where he does. that gets paid to do that because, I mean, we're all we're all there as you as you alluded to, Tim. You just get so embarrassed listening back to your own voice, which is not great in this industry because that's kind of kind of what you're supposed to do. But no elocution for me. It was more. and I, this is my analogy. Another analogy again. I do equate this to being like a footballer. When I first started out, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. But as soon as you start getting a run of games together, someone puts their confidence in you. Um, because I'm not naturally a particularly confident person, you're always questioning what you're doing. Someone says you're good, and and they keep employing you, and then you end up. I've only really recently been doing kind of very consistent commentaries week in, week out, because I was doing a lot of just reporting, just updates on Final Score or Five Live, which is great in itself, but it's not quite the same. And when, when you do like a commentary and then you do another one a month later, you just feel a bit rusty. And I think it's just – it's that run of games. You get really confident in the rhythm – um, and then, you, and you get happy with what your voice is doing. And I do think it's also if you watch the amount of football that I'm sure all of us do on on this on this call, you just know when when I think it just kind of almost by osmosis, you kind of know when to kind of put your voice high and when to put your voice low. When I first started out, my um, voice I got way too excited way too quickly, and voice went all over the place. So no no kind of um, lessons in terms of. Um, sort of pitch and things like that it's just learning on the job which thankfully i was fortunate enough to do because i, w- I would never swap anything like local radio or doing wsl on the on the sports website or five live sports extra where, where it only my mum and dad were listening because that is where you get your you get all the mistakes out of the way you get your grounding and you go back and you you analyze a little bit i know people who listen back to their commentaries uh, you know, religiously. And I think that's a really good thing to do within. I mean, I think there's a balance to make. I probably don't do it enough if I'm honest, but um, it's really important to, to kind of uh, go back and pick out things you think, oh, okay, I liked that. I didn't particularly like that. Um, so that, that's a very important part of the job as well. And I will say this, Tim, on the, on the question you asked Lucy, it's people like you that make our jobs. Yeah. <laughs> the arse blog and all that stuff. I was, I was thinking, I, this makes our job so much easier, and every if every WSL club and every well not just WSL if every women's football club had a, an outlet like that, where I really trust it because I think that's the other yeah. um, problem, isn't it? Trusting, Lucy? yeah, you, you, yeah, because with Premier League stats, you think, well, I'll just believe that because you know there's people. This is that people doing that as a full time job, and you mm-hmm. think, well, you know there's Opta and things like that, and that's coming into WSL. But you, I always check and double check stats with women's football because you just think they may have missed something off and it, it you, you you are more likely to get tripped up and get things wrong so that's why things like ask blog your ask cast you just think yeah these people are passionate about the club and they won't want to get anything wrong so you you, you put your trust in them.
0: I, I spent 40 minutes fishing for that compliment. And, um, <laughs> and, and, and I finally got it. Um, so I think we're going to leave it there for now. But Robin and Lucy, thanks so much. That was really, really illuminating and, and just as interesting as I thought it would be.
2: Brilliant. Thanks so much, Tim. Cheers, Tim.
0: Absolute pleasure. Um, stick around after the break because I will be talking to Susie Rack about her new book, A Woman's Game, The Rise, Fall and Rise Again of Women's Football.
3: And use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best
0: friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Okay, so joining us now on the episode, uh, and I believe going ahead of Leah Williamson on the leaderboard for appearances on this podcast, we have The Guardian's Susie Rack. Susie, thanks so much for joining us.
3: I can't believe I'm ahead of Leah Williamson for anything. That is a win in my book. I'll take that all day long.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. And Susie, we've got you on for um, a very specific reason today. Would you like to tell our listeners, I'm sure most of them heard about it anyway, but what why exactly or what exactly we're going to be talking about today?
3: So, I have a book out. Um, it's a sort of like a I suppose a sp- social political history of women's football is the way I always describe it whenever I'm asked is um yeah, basically looking at the game through history it's rise and fall and rise again is the tagline but um yeah starting from the very beginning the earliest records of women's football right through to the present day and hopefully finishes up with a little bit of a call to arms and a manifesto for what the game should be as well which was like quite an important part of it for me i didn't want it to just be a history i wanted it to speak to what the future should look like as well um if and yeah talk about the trajectory of it too
0: And one of the things I wanted to focus on actually was that I I personally I love the title um, The Rise, Fall and Rise Again of Women's Football and that to me is, that's really really um, I think that's the thing that conveniently a lot of clubs at the moment maybe a lot of, actually not so much the FA in an English sense but a lot of regional FA's would like to have you believe that women's football is something new that's only just started um, and maybe erase some of that history, and particularly not even just the history of like the sixties and seventies but going like back to the nineteenth century um, what what i I guess like um how how intent were you on like the title and the theme of the book? really really putting out there very very clearly that women's football is basically as old as men's football but there are reasons why there's a bit of a gap in the in the history books
3: yeah i mean it's it's the critical piece isn't it really in that like obviously so many people look at women's football today and think of it as a new beast and uh as something that is being thrust down their throats or is be you know is the the growth is is not organic it's being forced but actually there was this whole period of time where there was actually pretty organic growth of the game um, and then it was cut down by the FA's 50-year ban of uh, women's football from um, all the grounds uh, that it was in charge of so like I think it was really important to make it very clear that you know in the rise the fall the rise again that there was a, there was there was a rise before it sort of suddenly shot up now. And one of the things that was interesting for me when I was researching, it was like, um, I was sort of expecting to start writing the, the history from the sort of late 1800s when, um, woman, Nettie Honeyball, it's a pseudonym, um, for a woman who was starting a women's football team, um, sort of put together the earliest team in Britain that's sort of recorded. Um, I was also expecting to start around that time period. um, But actually I went back a lot further and looked at, you know, some of the earliest forms of football, generally um, Kujo in China and the Han dynasty and various um, Chinese uh, dynasties really, really early on. And actually there are examples of women having not played proper games, but having kicked a ball. There's illustrations of them playing football from that time period. There's um, example, like examples of poetry where women are spectators and things like that. And little, little snippets of um, and glimpses of very, very small ones of women being, involved or having a relationship with football way 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 beyond what i think anyone would ever imagined and like there there were quite a lot of those and they were like like i say just snippets and not necessarily things you could double source um but enough to give you a flavor of 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 there having been some kind of life to uh women's relationship to football far far beyond it being formalized in any real sense as well which was really exciting for me because like that was just stuff that i did not know was really out there um and like my history is quite concise like it's not a very very long dense thing it's like quite an easy read i hope um but hopefully gives a bit of the flavor of that for anyone wanting to like look into it more as well i think
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that that jumps across at me in the kind of limited engagement I've had with like the subject of the history of women's football, and I think history in general is basically like sex based or gender based discrimination doesn't arise naturally. What happens is that like women are involved in something, for example, they're stopped from being involved in something and like it's a deliberate policy choice that quickly becomes normalised. Um, And when, you know, I've written a book before or helped to write a book about the history of Arsenal. And one of the things we looked at was like the crowd for those first games in the 1880s, loads of women there. And actually the only question around women being there wasn't so much around women themselves. It was actually about their attire because they tended to wear long dresses and like the, (laughs) the terrace was just mud. So the questions originally weren't around the presence of women. It was oh but like their dresses are going to get dirty which i suppose still feels like a very dated kind of sex based stereotype but the people's issue wasn't women being there it's like ah oh, how can we make this environment a bit more comfortable for women and and, uh, and and that's one of the things that really jumps across at me um you know it, uh, what like what is that what came across to you like in terms of there being like a very deliberate hardline attempt to almost like stamp on the throat of this thing
3: yeah completely and I was actually surprised um a little bit by how like just overt it was as well there was no like sugarcoating of it like there was no kind of trying to hide real kind of sexist outdated views or p- possibly not outdated at that time but what we would consider outdated today views behind like a veneer of respectability or um or like you know kind of some kind of smoke screen that would you know make them make people seem that like they didn't have uh particularly terrible views on women it was just really really out there and overt, and you know in the press very very literal about why they thought women shouldn't play football um why it was inappropriate why it was um you know they were physically incapable um why um it was yeah like totally unsuitable for um for Spectators to be watching women playing football, um, the clothes they wore, everything was just very, very overt. Um, the only thing that maybe was less obvious was the fact that I think a lot of it, um, a lot of the reasons behind the ban coming in was um, that the FA was scared of where the money was going. Um, and didn't like that there were these teams raising a lot of money for charities for war wounded initially after the war and and during the war and then for like striking miners and stuff in their local communities. Um, And that was money that the FA didn't have under its control, didn't really know where it was going. um, Didn't like that there was this money being raised that was outside of their control. And I think that was a big aspect of it, you know, just the unsuitability part was a bit unsavory for them but i don't think it 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 scared them the way that this uncontrollable beast um this game developing that they didn't have a say over uh, really was was growing i think that was the biggest fear Um, and i also found like some sort of very very brief mention of the ban possibly having existed long before 1921 of that actually of that actually being a second ban on women's football and that there actually was one sort of in the early 1900s um but was from what i can find forgotten about um and was never actually lifted and when it regrew in the war um as women went into the factories and then sort of joined factory teams and uh, built factory teams sort of as a natural part of that um then there was a new ban brought in with an old ban having never been <laughs> been lifted um and that actually women's football may have been stopped in its tracks much much earlier but the evidence of it is so slim there's just a loose mention of it in a few newspaper articles that suggests that actually uh late 80 at early 80 early 1900s late 1800s there was there was another ban of women's football which again was something that you know just fell across in research and you know still trying to do a bit more research into uh to find out just how uh how real that ban was
0: and you know you referenced there a lot of the 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 element of research like one of the things anyone who tries to cover any level of women's football finding stuff from 10 years ago is really really difficult you know even post ban but how difficult was it to find stuff you know from like the late 19th century and also that period I'm interested in during the ban, which obviously wasn't like a legal ban. It just meant, just meant. It it but it might as well have been. But it's just it was. You know that they weren't allowed to play on grounds where men played, so they weren't allowed to play in men's stadiums, etc., etc. How difficult? And so that kind of forces it underground in a sense. How difficult was it? You know, just researching this book, because I know finding stuff from 2010 is next to impossible. So like the, the 60s, the 50s, the late 1800s, how difficult was that?
3: very especially when covid hit and we're suddenly thrust into pandemic and you can't access any archives can't go to national football museum can't get into the british library archives and you've got a book to write on history of women's football where very little exists suddenly makes it all all the harder and you're really reliant on like british library online newspaper article archives and things like that um and then just pre-existing research as well there's a lot of like individuals steve bolton jean williams um carrie dunn like who have done a lot of work in researching uh sort of individual teams or periods um but you know not necessarily brought it together in the way that i wanted to do with this book which was contextualize it as well in sort of like right why, like what was going on in the world at the time of all these key moments for women's football more generally um you know what were feminist movements like at the times and things like that um so it was reliant on a lot of pre-existing research done by people and then yeah delving into a lot of online archives um first-hand accounts of people um, you know, interviewed Sue Campbell, um, around the Olympics and things like that, and Kelly Simmons around sort of her earliest days at the FA, um, and, you know, when the FA took over the running of women's football and things. Um, and yeah, I mean, when you're like, I suppose the sort of bonuses is when you're covering the entire history of women's football, you don't have to go into a huge amount of detail on, um, specific games per se bar like in some of the major tournaments or some really critical ones you know the 99 cup final um world cup final um and things like that but um so you don't need to necessarily find loads and loads of stats from games and which is the hardest part right but um yeah obviously you know when you're when you're falling back on um you know people's kind of lived experience of things you also have to be careful about how much you rely on their own view of it and be aware that there there are probably other views of how time periods went and how games went and how decisions were made which is very very difficult um and something that i suppose has to be almost caveated throughout the whole book like this where the history is so difficult to find and it's not been recorded at the time with the kind of diligence that you'd hope for when you were researching a book and writing a book like this.
0: Yeah, 100%. Again, when we did like the Woolwich Arsenal history, there's a whole chapter on here are the sources, here are why we doubt some of them, here's why we think this will like, almost an entire chapter as a caveat to say like, (laughs) here are the sources, this has been a popular source, but we doubt it for this reason, this hasn't been, we think, you know, there's so, so much of that. Um, one, one of the periods I'm really interested in is because we talk about the ban and I think um, relatively speaking that's coming more into the public conscience and it certainly talked a lot about, you know, a lot within like the, the community of women's football and women's football fans. But the period I'm really interested in is from 1971 until the FA actually takes up women's football in 1993 because we talk about the ban being lifted. But really, the impression I get is just lifted in name only. Um, what what did you find out about that period? Like the seven, you know seventy one pressures come on, the ban is lifted. But like say like the rest of the nineteen seventies and the eighties. What what about those uh, that kind of era of twenty years or so? Did did you find out, or or what impression do you get of that era?
3: that it was a battle essentially that it was like, I mean, it was almost a battle as if the ban was still in place in that you're, you're still trying to like, it it was lifted, but there, you know, there was no, you, you didn't have the volume of teams there to really kind of put the pressure on to actually kind of make things happen in a real big way to make a big fuss about it. Um, and it was almost lifted to stop the noise to a certain extent. Um, And so then you've got this real sort of battle of these small groups of teams and individuals trying to find a way to get the FA to take it seriously. And you've got the formation of the Women's Football Association that have helped get the ban lifted, but is still a pretty chaotic organization, um, with, you know, its own internal problems, um, which you know protects the amateur status that uh, is needed to keep the FA on board when you've got players that are being offered professional contracts, places, and things like that, and so you've got all these like contradictions in that time period, um, and people vying for um, for I suppose credibility and and um, being and getting the game to a point where it's viewed as credible um, enough for. Um, the FA to back it and then you've got the point at which the FA back it and don't necessarily even then take it particularly seriously and you've got then the internal battle being waged within the FA alongside the external pressure being applied um, but again it's it sort of at all times a balance of forces and on which one is you know like whether the, the pressure can build enough to make things change and I don't think it's until until sort of much more recently that you actually get a a real ideological shift within a section of people in the leadership of the FA um, with new people coming in more than like a change to people already there that you actually start to see any kind of real movement or belief that the women's game deserves to be supported and funded and backed which is I mean it's terrible isn't it when the FA isn't a body that's not for profit right and Um, you know it's supposed has the slogan to now today that football is for all and yet you've got this ridiculous scenario where this not-for-profit body that is supposed to promote football for everyone doesn't give the same prize money for the fa cup uh men's fa cup as it does the women's or for that matter like for disability football um and things like that you know in in theory like for a not-for-profit body should actually be waiting towards the other stuff not even making it equal it should be waiting towards the weaker um like little sisters of the of the uh, of the equation rather than um even equalizing it because that would be that's the way you push that's the way you close the gap right it's not equal (laughs) equal maintains the gap um so yeah you've got all these different contradictions and like that time period is like almost yeah the the sort of messy moment where you get the pressure rising and waiting to reach a critical moment where it's strong enough for actual change to be realized. And it's basically the sort of mucky comings and goings and, um, you know, various articles in the press about, um, you know, games and the importance of women's football. And then, um, you know, various people in governing bodies around the world putting down, um, elements of it you know so I was thinking of um I think it was when uh the unofficial England team came back from the World Cup in the unofficial World Cup in Mexico and um a, pl- a couple of players came back injured and the front page of the mirror was some of the players like on sort of on crutches through the airport and basically using it as it you know you'd had this amazingly successful World Cup with um what possibly had the the biggest crowd that women's game has ever seen of over 100,000 fans um, although, you know, the records again, you can't totally rely on the, the different numbers that are, are touted around. Um, but then the choice of the mirror is to go with, um, you know, this, this look, the, these girls are coming back broken from having competed in this football match. Um, and yeah, so you've got all these kind of, those kind of different contra- contradictions, uh, arising and it's, yeah, just like a bit of a battle of forces
0: yeah yeah i i'm going to come back in a minute to um you know how the book came about and everything like that, but clearly, when you kind of sat down to write it, you must have had before you did any research or anything like that or even when you did preliminary research like a rough timeline in your mind that again I think people who work in women's football day today would be aware of like the origins the ban the end of the ban f a coming in w s l you know a rough kind of timeline but when like researching and writing the book, what was the thing you found that you that surprised you most? Or was there something you found that you didn't have any knowledge of um, at all?
3: I suppose it was that, that earliest stuff, the real, real early stuff. The examples of um, like the artwork from like various Chinese dynasties that show women in fancy dresses kicking balls in the air and stuff like that there that's the stuff that really surprised me and then uh, and then the the, the like real overtness of the the vitriol against the game as well like I didn't expect it to be quite so strong um and then I suppose yeah, they're they're the things that surprise it's the early, really early stuff that surprised me the most just because I, I knew so little about it and the possibility that there was this other ban um on women's football in England that's that never no one's ever really reported or um has discovered as far as I can see. Um I've had a bit of a chat with Carrie Dunn about it and, you know, we're trying to look into it a little bit more, but um yeah, it's really it's really that very, very early stuff. Finding the examples of um mentions of uh the women's game in church records from like the 12 1300s and things like that like just um even if it's uh sort of fair type you know novelty games just any kind of relationship at that those kind of really really early levels they're the things that really excited me because i just had no idea that you know the game existed really with women having a relationship to it that early on
0: Anna, I, I mean, I was going to ask um, about like the perhaps the one figure in the book who really jumped out at you, and, and maybe thought uh, this individual like deserves a book in their own right. But I, I think maybe there are probably too many to mention. But you mentioned I always I always get the synonym wrong. Is it Honey Netty Ball or Netty honey Ball? <laughs> Nettie Honeyball. Nettie Honeyball, that's the one. So, uh, I, like, I, I did like a, a much much shorter. I did, I did a piece for Four Four Two on like ten kind of pivotal moments in the history of women's football, mm-hmm. and, and I found out a little bit about Nettie. Can you can you talk a little bit about um, this woman and 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 her? I guess what she did uh, for women's football because it's fascinating.
3: It really is, and like, I was just uh, grabbing the book there because there was a real good um, interview that I found with her when she set up the um, the British Ladies Football Club uh, that I think was done in a magazine called the a newspaper or magazine called the Sketch, um, where she's basically interviewed about the reasons why she set up the team and what amazed me was that she was just so overtly political in her motives for founding the team and it was very much like a feminist act you know she was a feminist she wasn't a football person she liked football she like enjoyed it but she saw it as a tool to like push back against the patriarchy at that time and push back against this like victorian ideal for women which was you know you like women in the high end of society were um, you know what was valued was frailty paleness like being very very small and skinny and um, uh, and and very very white and um, and not active and uh, not flushed cheeks and and that kind of thing and then you got at the other end the like impoverished and working class women who you know are forced to go and work in the factories have got rough hands have got um you know sunburnt skin from working in the fields or like um or whatever it may be in the factories kind of slightly grayish look or whatever um and then you've got this uh this woman championing champ- championing uh women playing football and I mean she she very much was pushing it amongst the sort of upper levels of society in order to drive the credibility of it and even masking some of the, the background of some of the players to be able to um, sow this illusion that these were respectable women playing this game in nice, nicely turned out outfits that covered their bodies and, um, and things like that. Um, But there was, I suppose like, yeah, this, I, I always knew it was a political act. I always knew that, you know the reason why they did it was because they were feminists her and uh, she got um a woman called lady dixie uh to be sort of patron of the team and fund it um and you know another feminist suffragette like important um uh campaigners against um you know uh well for the right of women to wear boys clothes and things like that um and I always knew that, you know, football was a bit of a tool, but I didn't realise that they were so outspoken in, in like putting that forward. You know, they were very, you know, they said it, they said that, you know, this is why they're doing it. That it is to raise these issues. That it is to show that women can do things beyond um, what is expected of them um, as, you know, kind of little women in society. Um, And that's, yeah, that was another bit like, again, in the same way that the overt, anti women attitudes surprised me a bit later on Their over feminists, um, political views, um, surprised me, uh, as well. Like that was a really cool thing. And she, yeah, she, I mean, she was incredible in that. like, you don't, with no, no, there's ideas about who she was, um, because Nettie Honeyball was a pseudonym. Um, and you know, I've got one in the book is that she was, um, Uh, from London and, you know, where the advert was placed, that she knew the people, uh, the address of where they had to post the adverts, you know, requesting members of a team. Um, And, you know, there's various different views on who exactly she was, but like you read the interview in the sketch and I put a lot of that interview into the book because I thought it was like just such a, like, that that actually that was one of the things I found hardest was finding bits like that, which was a really long interview, and you know it was like twelve hundred words in and of itself, and trying to decide whether to cut it or not. And I like I wanted to put the whole thing in full, and the editors made me obviously you know kind of trim it down and tied it up a little bit and um you know kind of condense it a little bit, but want, like, ideally I wanted people to read that in the way that I read it and go, wow, this is incredible. Like word for word, this is like a real interesting, um, woman conversation interview. Um, and she was given the column inches to do it and, and put those views across, uh, which is also a surprising aspect in and of itself. So it, that bit was the hardest was when you were surprised by something was trying to then fit it into like, you know, kind of a few hundred words of a chapter or whatever it was
0: yeah and i think um you know a lot of the words using in there like really really kind of um i mean i don't they don't ring bells because of my personal experience in any way shape or form but you know political rebellious feminist like these were you know these were these were like incredibly like confrontational almost and i don't mean that in the negative sense i mean in terms of like upsetting Something like patriarchy, which is still enormous in this day and age, but in the time we're talking, um, you know, the idea of even the idea of questioning something like that was was kind of incredibly dangerous. Um, and you only got to look at what happened actually happened to people like the suffragettes. Um, you know, like pretty violent um, and out there. Um, the last question I'm going to ask you was maybe sh- should have been the first question I, I should have asked you. Um, and it's not really to do with the content of the book, but how did the idea for the book come about? Did you pitch it? Was it pitched to you? And um, just describe a little bit the process of writing a book because it's painful, right?
3: Agony. Um, yeah, no, so I had no intention of writing a book. Obviously, I still feel fairly whilst you know i'm quite experienced now i still feel fairly early on in my career as a journalist um and i got uh, approached by an agent um literary agent max edwards he's a great guy um he's been a amateur volunteer referee himself um and has refereed some women's matches as well as men's and really really good um uh, good literary agent um and He said, look, let's just go for a coffee and have a chat. And we had a sit down and he said, look, I think, you know, the timing is right with women's Euros coming up in England for a generalised history of women's football. And I think you're the right person to do it. And whilst I wasn't convinced that I was necessarily the right person to do it, like i liked the idea of it enough to be interested and then the timing did make a lot of sense you know the idea of having a home euros um which obviously got pushed back by year because of COVID, which actually helped me deadline wise which was very very useful um was like an attractive one um i was very nervous about it because like i'm like whilst i'm a journalist my like background is not having studied English or journalism. I did architecture, which is project based, drawing based, design based. So like the longest thing I'd written was, I think I had to do a, as part of my final project, uh, like 5,000 words, um, like dissertation type thing uh, but again it wasn't like most of my work was project based so that was the longest thing I'd written so sort of you know we're just talking like long chapter length at once um, and obviously I'm used to short form writing for the paper um, so I was quite nervous about that and what it would take to reach the types of word counts they were wanting um, and then obviously like the difficulty with. Uh, the history of women's football as we've already said is that there's a lack of information so then you worry about getting the word counts high enough from that point of view as well um but sort of once i stopped worrying about that so much it was a little bit easier to write it was hard in covid writing a book like really difficult um it put so many barriers in the way you know people were furloughed that you know couldn't reply to your emails and things like that on getting to look at archives and stuff um and like i would say it's probably poorer for covid as well because you know i would have been able to get to so many more places if um if you know we hadn't had that big stoppage in the middle but at the same time like i hated every minute of writing it i wouldn't recommend writing a book but i'm writing my third so <laughs> i mean you sort of end up getting sucked into it and the feeling when you finished it is pretty good when i had finished it, actually because I, I wrote it in sort of chunks not in any particular order whilst having a sort of chapter by chapter idea of what what it was going to be um i sort of lost sight of, of what it looked like as a whole and what it read like as a whole. So when I finished it, I really wasn't happy. Um, and, yeah, just kind of didn't think it was a very good book. And then I sort of thought, I just I need to read it from start to finish because I can't remember what it would look like in that form. And so I got the edited version. I just sat down for two days and read it from start to finish. And was like, actually, a lot happier with this than I thought I was. I just, like, totally lost lost sight of its flow of like how it moved through uh section by section and things like that and it just really kind of, yeah, lost that look at it. But sitting back and reading it from start to finish really, really helped. So I'm actually happy with it now. But um uh yeah it was a very, very difficult like it was a big for a first book it was a big subject to bite off. <laughs> um like my second book is um an illustrated book um where i've done the words for some illustrations on like 50 great sports women throughout history not just football and that was far easier because it was like six seven hundred words chunks and you know not having to flow and it was you know just on each individual and it was shorter because it's mostly about the illustrations and that was that would have been a better starter book if i'd done it the other way around that would have would have made a lot more sense but um yeah hopefully people like it
0: yeah and when you write something like this the role of the editor is just invaluable it's 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 the same I'd say as like making an album or something you live and die on your producer and it's the same for the editor who can be your worst enemy and your best friend all at the same time Um, but you've really 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 got to have that kind of trust there so Susie, just to finish, um, now we've talked about this this book for a little while, can you remind our listeners first of all of the title of the book and where they can buy it? So it's called A
3: Women's Game, The Rise and Fall and Rise Again of women's football, and uh, you can get it basically anywhere, any major bookshop, Amazon, Foils, Waterstones in the it's um, being published by Faber um, and the Guardian in the UK and then by Triumph in the US and in Japan as well which is kind of cool I can't wait to get a Japanese copy in my hand and see what it looks like but yeah so um, yeah it's pretty available which is great
0: excellent stuff Susie thanks so much for your time Uh, and I think I speak for everyone when I say first of all thank you for writing it because there's not enough of this literature around and best of luck with the book.
3: Cheers. We'll see what you think after you've read it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you know. Thank you. And that's all we have time for, for this episode of the Arsenal Women Askcast. Cast. I just want to say, again, a big thank you to our guests, to Robin Cowan um, and Lucy Ward, and for all of the insights that they gave us about, about their job, which kind of sounds like the best job in the world, really, doesn't it? But um, I really wanted to kind of lift the lid on uh, what it's like to be a commentator and what it's like to be a co-coms and, and, you know, go out live and all of the research and preparation that goes into that. And I really hope you got something out of that, regardless of whether you're an Arsenal women fan or not. Um, And a big thanks as well to Susie Rack uh, for talking us through her book, uh, A Woman's Game, The Rise, Fall and Rise Again of Women's Football. And I'd just like to reiterate that that book is out now and available to order online. You can get it in all of the usual places, Um, including Amazon, but you know, um, there are probably other sites, independent sites, uh, independent bookstop bookshops rather, that would love your business um, to be able to to order from them. I'm sure they'll be able to facilitate that for you. Um, But once again, a big thanks to our guests. We'll be back with another episode around about the beginning of the Euros, either maybe a couple of days before, maybe a couple of days after, but in that kind of early July time. Um, And thanks so much again for downloading, for listening, um, for all of your comments and everything like that. Um, I'm anticipating July being quite a busy month, um, not just because of the Euros, but uh, maybe we'll get some signings in the can and announced and things like that. So we'll be across all of that for you. And obviously we will do a July mailbag episode as well at some point during the month of July. But until then, thanks so much. Take care and goodbye.